welcome back to another episode of Oh the Good Old Days, your time travel tickets to history's dirty little secrets. Hello everyone, I'm Kinsey and I'm an automated external defibrillator old. And I'm Ellie and I am smart pill old. Wait, you, you mean I could have just taken a smart pill instead of all those years of school? It's very expensive and I think it only works by saying what's wrong with your gut. <laughs> Wait, did you say expensive? Have you looked at how much school costs lately? I'm still paying off my student loans. Have you looked at how much medical bills cost? <laughs> school might be cheaper. <laughs> and yet we're still number one in the world. We're number one. We're number we're one. Number one. <laughs> I don't know how it works. <laughs> well, speaking of amazing medical school, as everybody can tell from my voice, I've had a cold for like a month now. I finally gave in. I went to urgent care. And guess what the doctor tested me for? Hmm. Cooties? Well, COVID. I, I tested negative. It's not COVID. I think that's cooties, right? That's COVID good. Cooties? Yeah. No, cooties, cooties you get from boys, so you're probably safe. Ah, I'm definitely safe there. Um, <laughs> I did not test positive, or I tested negative for the flu, both A and B. And the nurse, as she's standing there clutching her cross, looks at me and she says, maybe you should pee in a cup. And I said, ma'am, I promise you I'm not pregnant. I took health class in, you know, eighth grade. I took biology. I'm most definitely not pregnant. And she said, you never know. <laughs> I think in your case, we can make an exception. <laughs> Did you know coughing is a sign of pregnancy, apparently? <laughs> I got those results back. You ready for this? Hmm. I'm not pregnant. Shocker. I never would have guessed. <laughs> it's 2023, but whatever. Oh, yeah. Medical. Well, you can find us online at Oh the God Pod on Instagram, Facebook, Threads, and YouTube. And if you're telling your friends to find us, make sure to search for O the G dot O dot D dot on iTunes, Spotify, or your platform of choice. Search without the word pod at the end, and please make sure to include the dots between the letters. Otherwise, the Glutinati will succeed in hiding our podcast from you. For more information on the Glutinati, please listen to episode eight. Hashtag unleash the revolution. Make that glutinati crumble. <laughs> well, before we embark on this journey through the utterly preposterous world of absurd medical solutions, don't forget to click that subscribe button to keep yourself in the loop about the next mind-boggling contraption or outrageously ludicrous remedy. Please share this episode with fellow enthusiasts of medical absurdity, aficionados of the eccentric, and anyone who savors a good laugh at the expense of the dumb. If our tales of outrageous medical oddities amuse you as much as they do us, we humbly request the honor of receiving a five-star review to steer other curious souls to this podcast. And reviewing is free. It is? 100%. How, how much time does it take? Less than 60 seconds. Depending on the platform that you're on. 
it takes me a lot longer than 60 seconds to put all this together. So we appreciate the reviews. <laughs> As we delve into the realm of antiquated healthcare gizmos, our mission is to arm you with knowledge because by the end of this episode, you'll be better equipped to differentiate between someone who is dead and someone who's reached a prestigious status of quite dead. You never know when you need to challenge a diagnosis from a charlatan brandishing an artificial leech with rotating blades, or who can say when the moment will come for you to clench your buttocks as a doctor tries to blow smoke up your posterior. And it's time for our Latin word of the day. <laughs> I have a picture of that too. <laughs> not, not my posterior, but you know. Oh, oh well, that's all I want to see. <laughs> all right. It's time for our Latin word of the day. Medicus. And just for shits and giggles, ridiculum remedium. I think you can make the connection, figure out what that means. Ridiculous remedy or cure. I thought it was a spell from Harry Potter. You know, they all sound like that. They do. Maybe all of Latin is like a spell. Oh, there does seem to be a lot of Latin in spell work. I think it's just because huh. it sounds cool more than functionality, though. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know what, then our listeners are in excellent shape. Yes. <laughs> All right. Eat an apple a day to keep that medieval doctor away, because after this episode, you, don't, you definitely don't want one anywhere near you. Now, remember, folks, I am not a doctor, but I do want play one on a comedy podcast. Laughter is indeed the best medicine, but please, for the love of God, consult with an actual modern-day medical professional. Now that we got that out of the way, let me set the scene. Back in the good old days, humans have been getting injured and sick since the very beginning, and cures and remedies are as old as time itself. All right, let's get started. Welcome to Dr. Kinsey's fake doctorology's office. Tell me, Ellie, what ails you? I've been having some trouble, actually, with the dick in a jar that I keep from our witchcraft episode. It's started to show some sores. When I went to feed it corn and oats this morning, I noticed some white patches on its mouth. Oh, no. You know, sounds like your pet dick has an STI, a sexually transmitted infection. That also sounds like syphilis. Again, listeners, I'm not a real doctor. Now... Ellie, it's essential to know that today, syphilis is entirely curable in its early stages with appropriate treatment. Typically, a single injection of long-acting benzathine penicillin G. But you know what? Dr. Kinsey's office focuses on the good old days, so allow me to cure your syphilis using old-timey treatments. The first well-recorded syphilis outbreak occurred in 1494. Let's go all the way back to the early 1500s, where syphilis was the hot new trend in diseases. Now, in today's Italy, Germany, and the UK, they called it the French disease. Because why not blame the French? Naturally. Meanwhile, the French, with a shrug of disdain, I'm sure, preferred to call it the Neapolitan disease. The Russians decided it was the Polish disease. The Poles decided it was the German disease. And the, <laughs> I think there's the, some racism involved in this. Just a tad. It was the others. <laughs> and the Danes, Portuguese, and North Africans collectively decided the Spanish Castilian disease had a nice ring to it. 
the Turks, they went with the Christian disease. And over in northern India, Muslims blamed Hindus and Hindus blamed Muslims. But at the end of the day, everyone put their collective hate aside and just blamed the Europeans. You know, the true international pastime. It's fair. <laughs> now, while this whole name-calling fiasco got rolling in the 1500s, syphilis had been around since 10,000 or 15,000 BCE. The great medical minds of the Tudor era had a solution for syphilis. Mercury. That's right. The planet? Liquid no, no, no. They didn't shove a planet up anywhere, no. Oh. They used the liquid metal. <laughs> ah. I, I don't know which would be less painful, though. <laughs> I guess it depends on what you did with the planet. I was just thinking you could blame it on being in the microwave or whatever. <laughs> I don't think they had microwaves in Tudor time. I think they did. They just hit it. Is, the Illuminati doesn't want us to know. <laughs> isn't that what King Henry, I think it was Henry VIII, died of? Didn't he die of syphilis? Microwaves. You think you're getting it backwards. He died of microwaves. Ah, okay. King Henry VIII died of microwaves. Got it. All right. <laughs> now, the, the doctors of the Tudor era called it a cure, mercury. But let's be honest, the only thing they were really curing you of was life. Do you think they could measure temperature better after being injected with mercury? Only if a microwave was involved. Mm. So a microwave and mercury turns you into a thermometer. Yes, exactly. I think that's how actually they discovered the first thermometer. Oh, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> <laughs> Just got to fill them up with enough of it. You know, if you, make, if you put anything in a microwave, it becomes hot. So <laughs> your true fact of the day, microwaves heat <laughs> things up. Now that you have a bit of a background, to help out your penis friend here, let's travel back to the 1500s aboard the ship, the Mary Rose. Sailors of that time often faced STIs due to their actions in various ports. I think that's a PC way to say actions. So ship doctors frequently encountered STIs. Now, Ellie, I need a favor from you. Mm -hmm. On our sources page, there's an image of a needle that was used to treat syphilis. This was recovered from the ship, the Mary Rose. Can you describe this needle for me? Well, it's very large metal. And I think the tip is maybe a 16 gauge, which is huge for a needle. And for those of us who are absolutely terrified and don't have a single tattoo and think phlebotomists are evil, what is a 16-gauge? Well, it's I, on, I only know based on like piercing needles, but I know that the smaller the number, the bigger the gauge. It's probably even bigger than a 16-gauge, honestly. It looks very dull. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was underwater for like 300 years. So. Oh, okay. That's fair. Maybe it was a little sharper at one point. But you know what? I... I, I, like, cry every time they draw my blood. I think I would die if they came near me with something that thick. <laughs> yeah, it kind of looks like the needle they use to give you the depot shot. <laughs> it's a form of birth control, and they put it okay, in your butt. You. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, wait, it's a wait, viscous wait. liquid. Why is your butt involved in birth control? I, I don't know, but that's where they put the shot. I, my guess is it's the meatiest area, so it's a good place to put it i don't know i never asked <laughs> i mean to me that needle looks a little thicker than what you put in a tire to inflate it it is it looks 
We'll go with dull. Maybe it's okay. maybe it's just because it was underwater for so long. Please, dear God, let that be why. <laughs> because metal expands underwater. I, I think don't know. Just, I'm not a scientist. I don't. I think. I think probably just from like corrosion and stuff. <laughs> Needless to say, it's a scary needle that you don't want coming near you. No, definitely not near my corn-fed penis. Well, back in the good old days, syphilis patients were subjected to mercury treatments, ingested, or brace yourself, injected with that needle of nightmares. Why mercury, you ask? Because this shiny liquid induced excessive salivation and vomiting. And at the time, the prevailing medical wisdom was that sweating it out, or in this case, drooling and puking, uh, the bad stuff was the way to go. I mean, sometimes that's not wrong. Sometimes. Maybe if mercury is not necessary, but... I was going to say, if you come near me with mercury, you <laughs> might get punched in the face. I'll move real fast. You won't know what hit you. You're going to be like, oh, did a bug just bite me in the ass? And then you're just going to be thrown up and you won't know what happened. And then you'll feel better. You're welcome. <laughs> or die. <laughs> or die. You know, it's a win-win. <laughs> All right. Well, let's fast forward about 300 years to the 1800s. And by then, doctors learned a lot So now they're taking this scary-looking needle, and they've learned that instead of ingesting mercury, you got to hit it where it hurts. And now they're injecting mercury into your urethra. You know, if that needle is meant for injecting mercury into the urethra, the gauge makes more sense. Because I wouldn't want a sharp (sighs) needle going in my urethra. I'd I'd want one that wasn't going to pierce the skin. And that one looks dull enough to not pierce the skin. (laughs) Well, you know what? The solution is don't have a sharp or a dull needle. Don't put anything in there. (laughs) Not to, not to kink shame, but. (laughs) No, no, no needles. (laughs) No, 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 no. We're good. Well, the side effects from, you know, mercury include intense cramping, salivation, diarrhea, and vomiting. And all of those are really far from pleasant. But the doctors in those days believed in a very twisted way of no pain, no gain. So the doctors and the patients took these agonizing symptoms as a sign of healing until the patient died. So maybe the the doctors just tortured the patient until the patient was like, you know what? Actually, I think I'm healed. Thank you. We're good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, mercury is a neurotoxin and there are multiple types, but I'm going to spare you the chemistry lesson. Let's fast forward another 100 years, and even as late as 1910, there's an account of mercury douching in an article ominously titled, Poisoning by Mercury Chloride Through Vaginal Douches. Mm. Spoiler, it did not end well. The woman passed away four days later. And I found another article from 1916 titled, Perchloride of Mercury Poisoning by Absorption from the Vagina. The patient also died six days later. Hmm. You know, speaking of all these illnesses, I was trying to deal with an infection on my toe, and I thought perhaps I could scare it away with the swing of a morning star, but instead I just cut my other toe on its spikes. Can you help me with that? Well, first, what's a morning star? I don't think I've heard of that. Spiky medieval weapon. Like a spiky mace, I guess? Kind of. It, oh, well, if, if you if you envision a medieval weapon, 
share an image with you. For me, when I think medieval weapon, I think of a morning star. And to me, that just sounds like such a nice way to start your morning. Your it does, but it's not. <laughs> well, morning stars just sound peaceful and pretty. But I well, they not. will make you go night night. <laughs> I realize the link I shared is for D and D fandom, but that is what a morning star looks like. <laughs> oh, there are other versions that have them on the spike on a chain. I didn't know that it was longer for more range, though. That's kind of metal. <laughs> so you can take off more heads with it. So this is a very scary-looking tool. And like I said, I would I would personally describe it as a mace scarier with, you know, with spikes. But you know what, though? I'm going to cure your cut. Ah, yes. Human skulls. No, 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 wait. I need the powdered version. Okay, got it. I mean, the obvious solution here is an ointment because the cut's not going to heal on its own. And for this lovely ointment, I am going to take inspiration from none other than the renowned Belgian chemist, Jean-Baptiste Van Helmont from the late 1500s. Now, from the renowned Belgian chemist, Jean-Baptiste, Jean-Baptiste, he's got a really messed up name, JB Van Helmont. From the late 1500s. Now, JB has a recipe that's simply to die for. First, I need an unburied human skull, one that actually has moss growing on it. Then I'm going to powder it and measure two ounces. I need to add two ounces of what JB charmingly called the fat of man. All right, I need to toss in half an ounce of mummy. No, 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 not the wrapped up corpses. Mummy is the word for spirits or life or vitality. So Uh, liquor? Possibly. (laughs) (laughs) Let's pretend we have that because I don't know how else you would measure half an ounce of that, but whatever. And then I'm going to add half an ounce of human blood and throw in an ounce of oil of linseed and some turpentine for an extra oomph. Hang on. I want to make sure everything I put in my body is ethically sourced. Is your human blood vegan? It's your blood, so I don't know. It's not vegan. (laughs) Sorry. Is it organic? It is definitely organic. It came straight from the source. (laughs) Are there any GMOs in it? Probably. I I don't know. Plenty of microplastics, too. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want that blood. Can I get better blood? (laughs) Sorry, we're stuck with your blood. But you know what, though? I'm not going to slather this on your wound. I'm going to instead apply it to the morning star because that's going to heal you. That makes that makes sense. Yep. Okay. <laughs> now, ironically, this charade might have actually saved some lives. I mean, think about it. No one's using unclean and non-sterile instruments on a patient to, you know, hasten their demise with an infection. Well, no, hang on, though. Are we going to try and argue that powdered human skull, fat of man, which I'm going to assume is fat, and whatever vitality spirits are, is antiseptic? Uh, If we're going with the... Well, it doesn't matter if it's antiseptic or not. It's not touching you. Yeah, but... It's going directly on the morning star. It's not going on you, the human. Oh, I see. I thought you were saying it saved lives because then you would cut someone with the morning star, but it would be no, no, no. it would be cleaned. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. It's not clean. But okay, I get I got it's saving lives because it's not going on me. Yes. That makes sense. Okay. Okay. <laughs> now let me give you a little more detail about the powdered skull. 
Now, if it was from the back of the head, that could allegedly cure epilepsy. I honestly don't know if that's an improvement over the last alleged cure, gladiator's blood. Yes, oh, that works. People Can't literally confirm. drank. They literally drank gladiator blood to cure their epilepsy in Norman time. I do a shot I, a night. Keeps me young. <laughs> but is he alive or dead when you do it? Dead. Is it the loser gladiator or the winner gladiator? Loser. Well, then what good is his blood? He's a loser. No, it's the fear in the blood keeps you alive. <laughs> so little, little you, Some people drink coffee. Others drink terrified blood of dead men. I'll stick to my monster. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think's in that monster? <laughs> The winners, not the losers. We only drink winners. <laughs> if you lose, you die. If you win, you die. <laughs> All right. Now, I got to delve a little bit more into this unburied part of the human skull. Now, you see, according to the wisdom of the German professor Rudolf Goklinius, not just any skull will do. No, no, it has to be from someone who suffered a violent, but not a bloody death. And this person cannot have been given the privilege of a proper burial, hence the unburied part. Violent and not bloody would be tough to find. I guess strangled is probably the, or beaten with a bag of rocks, but that would get bloody pretty fast too. Well, bloody and bloodless, not bloody and bloodless are two different things. I mean, you can bleed, but not a bloody death. I think almost any violent death I would consider bloody. Like if you're stabbed, bloody, beaten to death, bloody. Like I would consider that bloody, wouldn't you? Well, you know what? Actually, P- Professor Goclinius does get into the detail, as does other oh. people. So I will tell you what they thought because we're <laughs> not the experts. We're fake doctors. This is true. This is true. So Professor Goclinius believed that the vital spirits of those unfortunate souls were trapped in their skulls for a total of seven years. I don't know if he like measured it. Did he like, how did he figure out it was like seven years, not like six Seven years seems to be a very common reoccurring theme in not only medicine, but a lot of lore. Seven seems yeah. to be a pretty popular number. I don't okay. know why, but you know, so like everyone says, oh, you change your taste buds every seven years as if your body just like resets like some kind of robot <laughs> every seven years or, yeah. Well, our good friend J.B. von Helmont was a bit more lenient. They don't just have to be hung. They could be broken on the wheel as well. Nice. I'd it's, rather be hung, I think. I, I would agree with you. But you know what? For Because we want to give you this ointment, we're going to go with J.B.'s definition. Because you know what? It's, it's, we're going to be able to find more people this way to use mm-hmm. uh, their skulls. German physician Oswald Kroll had a little bit more nuances for his skull that he needed for his ointment. The whole carcass of a 24-year-old blemish-free red man. (laughs) Red man. Is that ginger or is that racist? I I thought it was an Irish man who was in the sun, but I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That still sounds a little racist. (laughs) To be fair, when I go in the sun, I turn red. I, I'm like lobster in the sun. Which makes no sense. <laughs> You're from the land of the sun. <laughs> My ancestors are desert dwellers, but I, I'm a lobster in the sun. <laughs> You're a cave dweller. <laughs> well, this very, very specific. I love how we're not stuck on the 24-year-old part. That's <laughs> fine. They- Whatever. <laughs> Close to death at this time of year anyway. Time of, <laughs> time of humanity. <laughs> 
All right, well, this very specific person needed to either be hanged, broken on the wheel, or thrust through, like with a sword. I, I mean, I assume they didn't. Oh really God, I would hope with a sword. <laughs> no hentai here. All right. Well, if that's not specific enough, the body still needs to be exposed to open air for one day and one night in a serene time. So, like, he can't have died during a battle. I, you, I'm still kind of stuck. How, like, you would need to kill somebody with a sword, like, thrust through them, but yet not during a battle, and then just let them lay there for one day and one night. And how do you know they're 24 years old? Because I don't think they kept good records back then. I ask for a birth birth certificate for, from everyone before I murder them. It's a general policy. Usually it's actually best if you raise them. That way you know for certain that they're 24. It doesn't have to be your own child. Just, you know, you have to be there for the birth so you know. You know, I don't have a birth certificate. I'm sorry. You can't kill Were me. Were you just forged? Do you have a warranty? You, know, you, you never know. Just- <laughs> Something I'll take with me to the grave. <laughs> how do we know how old you are? <laughs> well, anywho, we're going to take this body of the 24-year-old blemish-free red man that died, cut it into small pieces, and sprinkle it with myrrh and aloe. There's and a you lot fry more. it with sesame seed oil and a little bit of soy sauce. It's still not vegan, though. No, it's definitely not vegan. He, now... Professor Kroll had a lot more instructions, but this kind of begs the question, with doctors like these, who needs murderers? That's fair. Now, we've said the wheel a couple of times, and if you're blissfully unaware, you can either skip through 30 seconds or listen to what this uh, device is, but it's a torturous contraption where one unlucky soul would be stretched out flat tied like a macabre puppet, and then the executioner would uh, go all DIY by breaking their arms, legs, and various other bones. It's a very violent death. It's not bloodless, but it's not overly bloody because the bleeding is internal, I guess. Yeah, probably just death by hemorrhaging, internal hemorrhaging, right? As long as it's internal, we can use that skull. Perfect. (laughs) And then Make sure it stays internal. (laughs) Bag of soap. That's what you go with. Not the bag of rocks. Bag of soap. I don't know. Soap if bars, soap though. Not, not liquid soap. Liquid soap would do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just imagine the miscommunication? <laughs> I want you to beat him to death with a bag of soap, and it's just a sloshy, goopy bag of wet liquid soap. <laughs> oh, <my> <laughs> 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 soap sack. That's where I keep my corn-fed penis. That's how you keep it in order with a soap sack beating? Mm-hmm. All right, you know what? Let's say we can't find the skull or, you know, that powdered skull specifically. I have another possible concoction for anointment. Uh, have you heard of Sir Francis Bacon? I have. Yes, very smart man. He was known for his advocacy of the scientific method. English philosopher, statesman, scientist, politician, author, did a bunch of stuff. Well, his ointment required a powdered skull. I don't know. He didn't He didn't specify if it had to be from a, you know, bloodless or not. Does it have to be not human? Bloody. He said skull. I assume yes, because the other ingredients are not human. You ready for this? Mm-hmm. So a powdered skull and the fat of two bears that were, quote, killed in the act of generation. End quote. Hmm. Yes. 
somebody had to roam bear-infested woods during bear mating season and kill both bears as they were doing their thing. But both bears need to be close to fruition. You know what I mean? How does one judge? <laughs> like, I don't think a bear goes like, you know, <laughs> I'm going to come. <laughs> I'm trying to keep I'm trying to keep it PG and I'm like fruition. Oh, this is this this show has never been PG. Yeah, if your children are listening it. to this, that's on you. We do put the E on it. Both bears need to be killed during a simultaneous climax for this fat to work in bacon. Okay, we recipe. all know that's pretty rare. <laughs> I, I mean, that's not humans, that's bears, so who knows? I still think it's, I think it's generally pretty rare. <laughs> I can tell you, I know zero about bear sex. <laughs> Shall we Google? <laughs> Producer Anna, we need to know. I don't want it on my search history. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? You better be a damn good shot, because if you miss, you just interrupted Barris coitus, and you ain't gonna live us much longer. <laughs> Not to mention, I mean, even now it can be hard to kill a, a bear with a gun. Right. I the, the guns in the 1500s. I think there's a good chance that you are not gonna survive that interaction. Even if the bear dies later, you may not survive the interaction. <laughs> All right, producer Anna, do you have anything for us? So apparently, the bears are intertwined. And they stay intertwined until the next bout, but they do nuzzle and bite each other throughout. And walk around and walk while around. they're intertwined. <laughs> until the next <laughs> bout. unpleasant. <laughs> All right, you Maybe know. there is a simultaneous climax. An hour or more? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> All right. So 20 to 30 minutes, but up to an hour. But you know what, Ellie? I can it's tell that... You're not a fan of interrupting bear love or a, a bear one night stand. I don't judge bears. I try not to interrupt anyone's lovemaking. I like to be as far away as possible <laughs> from any of it. Well, I have one more. This one requires the spiritual power to be extracted from the, quote, the nut of a stag's pizzle transfixed in the act of copulation. So I have a fun story about the term pizzle. You can buy pizzle at Walmart. <laughs> the, the beef candy? pizzle. Oh, beef pizzle. No, it's it is exactly what they're talking about in this. The nut of a stag's pizzle. You can buy beef pizzle for dogs. And so I was <laughs> buying dirt and treats for Christmas, and I was looking at them, and I was like, "This one's odd looking." And oh, what's a pizzle? And I googled it, and I was like, "That's I'm just hanging onto a bag of three dicks, three beef dicks. That's fine." <laughs> and it's also a little insulting to the to the beef because i think it was like three dollars <laughs> oh well you know didn't get any <laughs> i went with something else <laughs> oh i don't know i think that fixes your cut maybe because again it I'm is put it but i'm not weapon. gonna lie all this talk of animal genitalia is making me a little sick to my stomach do you got anything for that nausea heartburn indigestion Upset stomach. All the diarrhea. things. <laughs> Just like a Pepto commercial. <laughs> well, let's venture over to the 1700s when the pink stuff was still centuries away and the go-to remedy was a good old-fashioned bloodletting. You ready to feel better? Enter mm. the scarficator. 
not a medieval torture device, but close enough. Again, on our sources page, there's a uh, snappy 30-second video from the Canada Science and Technology Museum showcasing this delightful tool in action. Ellie, I took a screenshot. Those things that you see are blades. Do you want to describe the picture for our listeners at home? It's giving pencil sharpener vibes, except you are the sharpener. <laughs> or you're the pencil. <laughs> well... Bloodletting, or as the posh folks call it, therapeutic phlebotomy was the it treatment for just about everything. The idea is simple. Feeling under the weather? Let's drain some of the bad juju, I I mean blood. Initially, this meant slashing a vein or an artery, but as time went on, doctors got fancier with leeches and specialized instruments for a more refined bloodletting experience. The scarficator was developed in the early 1700s as a more humane option than the lancets and fleams of yore. The scarificator, the the multiple blades, essentially, they sprang out and they just made a series of cuts faster than you can say, ouch. And that was an improvement over the fleam. I know you're asking, what's a fleam? It's a bleeding knife. In fact, bleeding knives and as always, there's a picture. Do you want to describe the picture for us? It almost looks like a set of keys, but instead of teeth on the keys, it's one vampire tooth. <laughs> See, I thought it looked like a Swiss army knife with different sizes of poker. Yeah, it's a, it's a Swiss army fleam. And what comes with the fleam, pray tell? What looks like a bedpost? <laughs> or something that you beat prisoners with. <laughs> All right. Well, these multi-bl- multi-bladed marvels, fleems, or phlebotomes, they derive their fancy name from the Greek phlebos for a blood vessel, or tome, meaning to cut. Fleems were used on animals and humans. You'd select a blade, place it strategically over somebody's artery, and then wham, strike it with a blood stick. Not a bad That post. seems like not the best method. <laughs> it just, it seems like, it seems, have you seen the videos where toddlers pretend someone's sick and they're helping them? That's something a three-year-old would come up with. I don't know. I think all phlebotomists are evil. Even your friend Riley. I'll tell Riley. <laughs> too. <laughs> she needs to listen to this about how her profession came to be. Oh, I, she she knows quite a lot, actually. She's she's a phlebotomist but junkie. Bed posts. Bed yeah. posts. I mean, I would call it a blood steak. Uh, they called it a blood steak. I call it a mini bat. But a, I mean, a bed post works too. Yeah. Now, they claimed that a quick, neat incision would minimize risk and tissue damage. And I don't doctor- think a bat is going <laughs> to minimize tissue damage. Not a doctor, but just just going to put that out there. I, I knife, whatever. That's fine. Yeah. Well, they said if the doctor's a pro, it would be almost painless. Mm-hmm. Lies, I'm sure. Yeah. Having a blade struck into your vein sounds like anything but painless. How much blood was enough? Oh, you know, just until you fainted, which is about 20 ounces for the average person. How many ounces are in a pint? 16? Sure. I'm pretty sure that's more than you're allowed to give at the blood bank. 
again, terrified of needle. I am a horrible person. I've never donated blood. I can't give blood. Since I've been of an appropriate size to give blood, I've had tattoos within the last 12 months every time, and they won't let you give blood if you have recent tattoos because of the particles in your blood. See, you have an excuse. I'm just, I'm just scared. So what you got to do is just start getting tattoos. And then instead of saying scared, you're just like, well, it's because I got, it's because I'm a badass because I have tattoos. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Producer Anna, how many, how much, how much blood can you give up? Can you donate? So producer Anna, just let us know that you can donate up to half a liter, which is about 17 ounces. Sounds like a lot if 20 ounces causes you to faint. Again, I'm just... People were smaller back then, so maybe there was less blood in them. They were also cooler. Humans have been rising in temperature. (laughs) You know, I am still smaller. I am like a whole half a... Yeah, you're like a... You might be part gnome. Is that why you don't have a birth certificate? Possibly. Possibly. (laughs) No, I cannot be president. Don't vote for me. (laughs) Curative, not so much. Common, incredibly so. From the ancient Egyptians right up to the 19th century. Why, you ask? Old-timey, wimey medicine believed in the four bodily humors. Blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. Sickness came from an imbalance in the so-called humors. So next time you're feeling queasy, just be thankful the cure is no longer a scarificator or a flea stick. It could be, but I'm going to be honest with you. Um, not feeling super hot after all of these cures and I, I, after losing the amount of blood that I've lost, I, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to hang out. Well, I got a solution for that too. Mm, I don't know if I want your solutions anymore. <laughs> We now understand the complexities of blood types and dire consequences of incompatible transfusions. Blood typing wasn't discovered until 1901, but back in the good old days, medical professionals played a dangerous blood roulette game, and uh, many blood transfusions ended in the patient rejecting the donor blood. So what was the whimsical solution some scientists and medical professionals concocted? Milk. Yeah, you heard that right. Milk. Cow milk or human milk? Let's because find out. I, I get I, to it. I don't I hate it. it. Okay, sorry. Right, it's okay. Well, let me tell you their logic, and then you tell me your logic for not hating it. <laughs> their logic is white blood cells, milk is white, so obviously sure. they're the same. Of course. What's your logic? Well, I just, there are transfusions you can give patients that are not blood transfusions. There can be, you know, nutrient transfusions and there are things in milk that are good for you. So I guess, I mean, there are certainly worse things that could be injected into someone. Oh, we'll get to those worth, worse things as well. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> the first guinea pig patient was a 40-year-old man who bravely or unknowingly received 12 ounces of cow's milk straight into his veins that's a lot that's a lot for one the first test i think i'd start with (laughs) smaller amount see how that goes astonishingly he didn't die and he actually looked like he got better do you think it was because of the cow milk though (laughs) (laughs) i wasn't there but i think it was goat milk that they used oh well Hmm. the doctors tried again and lo and behold another success 
but the next five patients died. Hmm. That's crunching the numbers here. That's a 29% success rate, two out of seven. Yet, somehow, doctors were ecstatic over the moon and patients from all over began receiving this milky salvation. Sadly, most of these dairy devotees soon found themselves comatose and then quite dead. Did we have a, a date? Oh, I see. Never mind. You're going to share soon when the date was that they were doing this. <laughs> In a fascinating tidbit from the New York Medical Journal, the 1880s became the year of milk mania in medical history. Dr. Joseph Howe, doubtful of animal milk as blood transfusion substitute, decided to shake things up by opting for human milk instead of goat or cow milk. Let me tell you about poor Louisa Raid, or Rod, R-A-D-E. I'm sorry, Louisa, I don't mean to mispronounce your name. Poor Louisa came to Dr. Joey. She was grappling with, quote, caries of the first and second ribs, caries of the first dorsal vertebrae, and chronic catural enteritis. Ellie, you know what that means exactly, right? You went to of medical course. school? Yeah, yep. Yeah. Well, for our listeners who did not go to the fake medical school you went to, what I did is I asked my, some of my friends, and yes, shocker, I do have friends, and I asked them, what do these words mean? Dr. Julie, this is a free plug for her, she's my dentist and my hockey teammate. She can be found at TLC Dental Center in Cherry Hill, New Jersey for those in the market for new dentists. I can guarantee she is 1,000 times better than any doctor from the 1500s. Would she inject human breast milk into me? Because if not, I don't want it. You need to find a new doctor then. Definitely does not do that. Everyone's turning me away. I'm running out of places. Dr. Julie tells me that caries in the ribs are basically bone abscesses. And I asked a billing specialist, Carrie, who said this sounds like a nasty bone infection. Finally, Dr. Diane, the anesthesiologist, paints a grim picture of the infections and abscesses in Louisa's ribs, spine, and abdomen. Mm. Now, you know what? My friends are old enough to have lived in the 1800s, so I believe them. And I'm not going to apologize for calling them old because they are all bums who don't listen to this. Back to the ill-fated Louisa. In a desperate move, the doc extracts three ounces of milk from a healthy female. Oh, there's just so many diseases that can... mm. Louisa, battling something bone-chillingly serious, is about to become a pioneer in the annals of moodical history. (laughs) I had to. (laughs) Now... (laughs) I'm a little confused. Did he just like walk around the hospital saying, boob milk? I need boob milk. No, I also need to know, did he milk her or did he use that needle that we saw to remove the milk? (laughs) I just want to know how he found a willing candidate so quickly. And you want to know how he got the milk. Neither of us will get our answer. (laughs) Unfortunately. The... Anywho, those three precious ounces of milk, once collected, were strained through gauze and cozied up in a basin of warm water. Before the utterly bizarre injection, Louisa's pulse was racing at 126 beats per minute. And she was breathing 22 times a minute. That's that's pretty high. Yeah. And after the first half ounce of the uh, Dairy Delight, Her pulse skyrocketed to 150, and her respirations jumped to 30. Even a fake doctor like me can tell you that ain't right. Mm. 
your body is probably like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> As the next half ounce went in, her breathing became labored and irregular, and her pulse was barely perceptible. At this point, Dr. Joey had an oh shit moment and stopped the milk transfusion. Then, to revive her spirits, Louise got a whiskey and morphine injection. That, (laughs) okay. So they also injected whiskey into her. This poor lady (laughs) clung to life for 10 days with milk, whiskey, and morphine coursing through her veins. Now, Dr. Joey did an autopsy after she died. And he said she had extensive necrosis of the bones. But he was excited to share no lesions at the milk injection site. Well, that's good, I guess. So, well, I I'm, now feel like I'm just drowning in absolutely ridiculous theories and ideas here. Hopefully not drowning in milk or blood, though. Oh, no. You're drowning. I have a solution for that, too. Okay. I. Picture this. It's the 1700s, and David Hasselhoff and Carmen Electra, decked out in period-appropriate swimwear, think bathing suits with a lot less cleavage and a lot more scandalous ankles. They're running in slow motion to save you, but instead of a red rescue tube, they're wheeling a smoke kit. Why, you're asking? I I see that look on your face. You're going to turn me into Paul Bork? Well, (laughs) at the time... Many believe that nicotine and tobacco could stimulate the heart to beat faster. Okay, that's true. And it improves respiration. Okay. Or they also believe that smoke could somehow dry the moisture in a recently drowned person. Okay, sure. Sure. Let's Let's dive into a tale from Venice's own Baywatch hero. Giuseppe Borgi uh, recounts reviving a guy that was fished out of a canal. The barely alive man was rushed to a bakery, of all places, where Giuseppe employed the esteemed methods of the, quote, most excellent health magistracy, tobacco smoke enemas. Hmm, Okay. Lung insufflation, which is a fancy term from blowing air into body cavities. Massage. The lung insufflation, I suppose, could be perhaps a fancy way of saying CPR, kind of? Yeah. Yes. So it's early CPR, but at the same time, it, the order things were done. No, I think, I think yeah. it should be more CPR and less smoke up the ass. <laughs> well, that wasn't all they did, though. So after the smoke up the ass, after the lung, they did a massage and they ended that with a little bit of bloodletting. Oh, naturally, naturally. The massage also, I guess, tracks a little bit as far as like returning circulation and perhaps like stimulating the heart to beat. The bloodletting, I could could go without that one too. (laughs) Uh, Well, somehow this victim began to recover. Now, speaking of insufflation, I know you're thinking of, you know, CPR, and this technique isn't new, and it's not quite the CPR you're thinking of. I know when I went to school, when I got certified, you know, we had to do it to a certain song that is probably copyrighted, so we won't sing it, and you would, you know, press on the chest and start, you know, doing counts and blowing Tilt the air head into back, the mouth. Keep the, the tongue out yeah. of the passage. Well, back then, they didn't do it that way. 
1472, there was a, a doctor called Paolo Bagallardo, Italian. He suggested that, you know, you could blow into the mouth of a newborn or you can blow up his anus. Mouth, mouth makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. So if he's not breathing, you just turn him over and into his butt. Well, by 1639, smoke enemas were so in vogue that the Surgeon General of the East India Company included a detailed drawing of enema fumosum in his surgical manual. By 1767, Amsterdam's Society for Recovery of Drowned Persons had resuscitated nearly 1,000 victims over 35 years. Oh, you know I did the math. You know I did. Yeah. That's about an average of 30 victims a year, drowned victims a year. Wow. That number is surprisingly consistent with modern-day statistics, but I kind of hope they don't employ smoke kits anymore, though. Oh, I'll have to ask Amsterdam. <laughs> well, I found a 2015 article in Amsterdam that, sheds, that shed light on something I've always wondered. Only about three people per year are presumed to drown while peeing in a canal. You've always wondered That's, how many people... Dr- <laughs> I did find... How many people I've died peeing into a canal? <laughs> yes. Like you're drunk, you're standing there, you're holding it, and you're just peeing, and then you just... Boo, splash. Ooh. No, just me? Yeah, just no, you. Just me. Just me. <laughs> well, they, they guess three people based on the telltale signs of the victim's attire, like, you know, open zippers, drop pants. But but I digress. Apparently nobody cares but me. <laughs> I feel like that attire could indicate other things as well that are less pleasant than dying peeing. <laughs> yes, this is true. Yeah, they can do it anywhere in Amsterdam, so they don't have to wait and stand by the canal. <laughs> All right. In London, smoke kits were common in parish churches, pharmacies, and along the Thames River, ready for aquatic emergencies. In fact, public health authorities promoted acts of kindness and suggested that the individual rescued from drowning should offer a monetary thank you to their rescuer. They even provided rhyming instruction for performing a tobacco enema. (laughs) You ready for this rhyme? Oh, yeah. Tobacco glister, breathe and bleed. Keep warm and rub till you succeed. And spare no pains for what you do may one day be repaid to you. All right. Essentially, once you're plucked from the water, you'll be stripped, dried, and warmed with wool or brandy or positioned near a fire. Then one of the pipe smoker medics, that was their actual, you know, job title. Wow. Um, <laughs> the pipe smoker medic would light up insert the stem into your rectum, and puff away. If that didn't work, they might resort to shaking you, as we talked about bloodletting, or some might put red-hot irons to your feet. And, of course, there's an illustration. If, Ellie, you can do us the honor of describing the picture. It is a person laying on the ground with their back to us. One person is rubbing their back. Yes, they're naked. And the other person is... It almost looks like they're smoking a hookah, but the end of the line is up the ass. <laughs> the naked person. <laughs> yep. Yep. Who needs CPR when you got smoke up your bum? <laughs> now, you know, drowning wasn't the only predicament where smoke enema was the go-to solution. <laughs> Naturally. Have you ever heard of cholera? 
Yes. Less than pleasant combo uh, of loose stools and vomiting, leading to dehydration and eventually death. Uh, During the European cholera outbreak in 1892, an editorial by by Dr. R.J. Hatchett in a North Carolina newspaper made a suggestion. Tobacco enemas. And no, tobacco enema isn't my quirky lingo. Those are his words. He explained that a dose of well-cured, clean tobacco blown up your backside would break the disease's hold. His proof? He heard about it. And not a single soul in the Spanish tobacco factories had cholera. Evidence. Now, John Snow, who is my epidemiology hero, he had already deduced by this time that cholera is spread, is spread through food and water that is contaminated by poop of an infected person. I really have no idea why a medical professional would recommend breathing into a rod, inserting said rod into uh, the poop chute, um, and try to cure a disease that's uh, spread by poop. Yeah, by the, by the 1890s, they had a, a general understanding of, of germ. I mean, James Marion Sims was dealing with that in the mid-1800s, and it ca- caught on not too long after that. It's kind of surprising that... <laughs> They weren't focusing on more antiseptic methods. Now, there was another editorial from that exact same newspaper that just sang the praises of chloroform as a cure, claiming that the chloroform would kill cholera. Hmm. Okay. I mean, people really liked blowing stuff up stuff. (laughs) I mean, we're not here to kink shame, but... As long as you're not doing it for medical reasons. <laughs> consent is everything. Mm-hmm. Informed Do you know what consent. else? <laughs> Informed consent. <laughs> well, moving on to chloroform. You know what else you can use chloroform for? Kidnapping children. <laughs> I've seen the movies. Well, it's also called a, quote, pain-destroying agent, according to a surgeon dentist in the 1850s. Meanwhile, in Britain, a 16-year-old needed his fingers amputated. So, Dr. Redford added a few drops of chloroform to a paper and applied it to the boy's mouth. The boy began promptly snoring, and the doctor removed both fingers and dressed the stumps. When the boy woke up, he said, Wow, I slept great. Oh, shit, where are my fingers? I I assume I wasn't there. The anesthetic luck didn't carry across the pond, though, as a woman in Buffalo had a tooth removed, only to, quote, fall into the arms of death, end quote, after she was given chloroform. Mm, Meanwhile, no one ever wrote anything down. (laughs) Why would they? Now, Now, this doctor did. You just wait. In New York, Dr. Parker removed a fistula from a patient using chloroform as an anesthetic. But then he said he needed another, quote, one-minute surgery, the details of which are lost to history. Dr. Parker administered another 30 drops of chloroform for this man. Sounds like a lot. (laughs) Tragically, the patient died the very next minute post the one-minute surgery. The inquest revealed that the cause of death was diseased lungs. The jury, faced with a uh, medical whodunit, could not definitively pin the blame on chloroform overdose or just the sheer excitement of the operation. Literally, the newspaper said, they don't know. 
either <laughs> chloroform or he was just Too overly excited. excited. <laughs> just the nerves. I, it, I, I think they meant like his body was just I think over, so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can die of excitement for absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's better than other ways of dying that we've talked about. <laughs> Some of them. Yeah. I. And in case you're wondering, chloroform has not been clinically used since 1976. A 2017 article examined the cinematic trope of using chloroform for kidnappings. An anesthesiologist confirmed that chloroform is not ideal, contrary to movie dramatizations. Chloroform is not only dangerous, but also impractical for swiftly incapacitating someone just because the fine line between a short nap and a forever nap. Fair. So to keep listeners, to keep your kidnapped victims alive without having to math a precise dosage, use something besides chloroform next time you kidnap someone. I even found a 1911 inquest that concluded a woman died due from an accidental chloroform poisoning, not by the hands of a doctor this time. The pharmacist sold Mrs. Pearson chloroform to alleviate her asthma. Hmm. It 100% worked. Her asthma troubles were over, but so was her time among the living. Ah, bit of a price to pay. <laughs> This seems to be a good point to just give you a little bit more history about tobacco. So let's just go back to 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. He received dried tobacco leaves as a gift, but he really had no idea what to do with it. Two of his sailors, however, earlier observed the native smoking and decided to bring this habit back to Europe. Rodrigo de Jerez, his neighbors, were so petrified by smoke coming out of his mouth and nose that they called the Holy Inquisition, who arrested him and held him for nearly seven years. Oh my God. Kind of sounds like the war on terror. I bet you he was fuming. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Moving on. Nicolas Monardes, Spanish physician and botanist, wrote extensively about the medicinal plants of the New World in his book published in 1571. Now, my Spanish is limited to ordering food, but a man named John Frampton translated this masterpiece in 1577. So just as a sidebar, some English merchants practiced piracy during this time. Frampton was not one of them, but he was imprisoned anyway. And between Inquisition torture sessions, he became fluent in Spanish. And he actually emerged as one of the leading translators of his time post-torture. That's... What a backstory. <laughs> <laughs> like, as they were torturing him, he's like, oh, what is this body part called? You know, they pulled his nail. He's like, he's like what is this body part called? <laughs> All right, sidebar over. Sorry. I'll, I'll focus. Now, Menardes alleged this amazing herb, tobacco, can cure 65 diseases. I'm not going to bore you with the full list. But let's just say this could be prescribed for fits, gangrene, gout, halitosis, madness, or tooth decay. Depending on the ailment, you can apply the leaves directly to the skin or through a poultice. You can consume part of the plant, or you can just use it as juice or extract. Other times, it could be ingested, sniffed, snuffed, or smoked. Now, Menardes was not alone. John Davies penned an ode, to to an ode to tobacco in 1595. Here are a few stanzas. 
It is tobacco which doth cold expel, and clears the obstruction of the arteries, and surfeits threatening death, digesteth well, de decocting all of stomach's crudities. Maybe if I smoke, my nose will not be so stuffy anymore. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe I should try it. Or do I just, like, apply the herb directly to, like, the top of my nose? How does that work? Maybe, yeah. Maybe, like, a face mask. <laughs> All right. And then they went from that to, you know, blowing smoke up people's asses. But you know what? Not everybody was a fan of tobacco. Pope Urban VIII disagreed, though. He banned tobacco in holy places in 1624 because he thought sneezing, you know, from snuff, was just too close to sexual pleasure for his liking. You know what? I'm going to give you the, oh, the G.O.D. Pods version litmus test. If you think sneezing is as good as sex, you might be a virgin. I mean, he was a pope. <laughs> Even back then, because I thought popes had, like, illegitimate children. Well, some of them do, but technically speaking, there's, they're not supposed to be having sex. Okay. Wait, is that how kids come? Well, it depends on who you're having sex with. <laughs> uh, I guess. There, right. are, there are genitals that need to be involved. <laughs> well, I'll just ask the nurse that, you know. <laughs> <All right. laughs> well, Turkey, under the Ottoman Empire in 1633, decided that the punishment for smoking was death. It's a little extreme. But then, <laughs> then they repealed that a few years later. <laughs> I guess injecting bleach, purchasing spear optimizers for the low, low price of $222 may not be the stupidest thing we've done in history. Well, the annals of history are brimming with bizarre and dangerous non-cures. But since we're trying to keep this under an hour, which I think we failed, uh, let's narrow our focus to HIV and AIDS. Allow me to tell you about Gambia's president from 1996 to 2017. His name is Ahia Jame, or as he prefers, His Excellency Sheikh Professor Al Haji Dr. Yaya Abdulaziz Awal Jamos Jankus Jame Nasiru, Nasiruddin Babli Mansa. Whew. That's all. That, that's all. That's his title. <laughs> I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to shorthand his grandiose title to President Quack for brevity. I think that's fair. In early 2007, both you and I were well alive and adults. Well, well I don't know. Adult, I was an adult. I was alive. <laughs> I, I was an adult. Right. Um, he, this President Quack proclaimed that he concocted a cure for AIDS, a proprietary mix of herbs and spiritual healing that, for some reason, only worked on Mondays and Thursdays. Hmm. He summoned... 10 volunteers to validate his claims. The conditions? No smoking, tea, coffee, or sex. More critically, they had to abandon all conventional medicine, including life-saving antiretroviral drugs. Hmm. Now, he had armed guards stationed at the doors to ensure no escapes. The, quote, volunteers were locked into a six-month regiment of morning green of morning green paste rubs and twice daily doses of an undisclosed yellow herbal mix. Mm. The results were unfortunately tragic. One participant suffered constant diarrhea and contracted tuberculosis, while his wife and majority of the other volunteers died. 
President Quack touted success. But it's estimated that almost 9,000 people underwent this so-called treatment, with the true death toll obscured by secretive record-keeping. How many people do you think have been truly cured of AIDS, Ellie? I can think of a couple of people off the top of my head that have been allegedly cured of AIDS. And one of them, I think it was through a bone marrow transplant or something along those lines. Yeah. Well, according as of 2023 in February, about uh, a little under a year ago, there's an ABC article that says five people, two from Germany, one from Britain, and two from the U.S., and two from the U.S., uh, have been cured of AIDS, all thanks to advancements in stem cell research and not herbal rubs. Do you know if it was the bone marrow or, or did I make that up? I think one of them may have been, but it's all because of like, like stem, advancements yeah, stem cell. in medicine. Yeah. 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 Definitely not herbal rubs and yeah. definitely not from Gambia. Or, yeah. Is it Gambia or Gambia? I've, I've heard it Gambia, but I, I imagine that probably neither are correct to their like true pronunciation of it. Yeah. Most likely. Okay. Perhaps even more disturbing than President Quack's dubious cure is the virgin cleansing myth that spread through sub-Saharan Africa and parts of India and Thailand. An untold number of horrific sexual assaults on young girls occurred, driven by the erroneous belief that sex with virgins cure AIDS. Sounds like something that a pedophile would come up with. No, this is this is so fucked up. I mean, I'm not saying take or don't take any of these cures. Because if you're an adult, you're making an informed decision. But now we are bringing these girls who have absolutely nothing to do with it into it. Also, virginity is not even a real thing. It's a construct. Like, you can't, you really, truly can't put a definition on it that fits every situation. But even if you could, and even, let's just say it's that very broad definition of never had sex, regardless of how you define sex. Well, that's what I, like, you, how, how do you define sex? Like, what, are, are lesbians virgins forever? Does it have to be PV sex? What if it's... I think, I think they're called gold star lesbians if they're virgins forever. <laughs> is, it, is it only the, the hymen breaking? Because that can happen when you're doing a variety of different things that are not sexual at all. Well, see, I, I didn't even hang, get hung up on that. I got hung up on the fact that, like, why would somebody actually think that would that would work because Poor lack of education, but it's logic. Yeah. But logic is so tied to education and, and like your ability to form logical thoughts is really tied to, to how well, like ed- education helps you learn how to think properly. That's why you like, you learn things you don't use in school, but it teaches you how to think critically. And if you live in an area that is deeply impoverished and has really poor education, then things like witchcraft and, and folklore and, and like these cures yeah. that are absolutely ridiculous people people buy into them they might think yeah i don't know That's it is it's absolutely ridiculous yes well you might think that quackery is a thing of the past or just confined to distant shores but you know what think again there's an australian alternative medicine practitioner who also happened to have gone to medical school but yet is not licensed in the u.s or australia In a 2015 HBO interview with Bill Maher, the Aussie Dr. Quack boasted about curing Charlie Sheen of HIV in his Mexican practice with a bizarre brew, milk from arthritic goats. 
He claimed arthritic goat milk is infected with Caprine arthritis encephalitis virus, aka HIV scriptonite, according to this guy. Naturally. Unsurprisingly, when Sheen stopped his uh, antiretroviral medication, his HIV levels surged. Thankfully, common sense prevailed and Sheen resumed his legitimate medical treatment. Meanwhile, Aussie Dr. Quack alleges that Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in LA stashed away samples of his medical cure where they remain hidden to this very day. And he is a grand example of the fact that education doesn't always help you learn how to think critically. Sometimes that just doesn't happen. How do you make the link between arthritis and HIV? I don't know. Also, you know what? Poor goat. Let's just move on. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I am all for natural medicine where it's proven and sensible. Turmeric for inflation? Great. Honey for a cough? Yes. Garlic for heart health? Sure. But let's be clear. If you're having a heart attack, garlic will not save you. If you're battling HIV, please, for the love of all that's scientific, consult a medical professional. The world is full of quacks preying on people. Don't let pseudoscience and false promises steer you away from legitimate life-saving treatment. Too long didn't listen? In summary, doctoring has vastly improved as we no longer use mercury to cure STIs. We don't grind skulls for for ointments, and we don't give people tobacco enemas or chloroform for anesthetics. Yet, despite today's advanced medical knowledge, some humans are still misguided by quacks and believe arthritic cow milk could cure AIDS. All right, everybody, I really apologize. I have been battling this cold that just will not go away. Maybe I need some bloodletting and mercury. Time to but give it thank a try. You. Hey, tried everything else. <laughs> thank you for joining us on this journey through the realm of medical absurdity, where the unconventional reigns, just like bloodletting and milk transfusions. If you've enjoyed these tales of quirky medical remedies and have your own bizarre prescriptions, don't keep them under wraps like a hidden diagnosis. Share them with us and join our community of medical mavericks by hitting that subscribe button. Prescribe us a five-star review to make our podcast grow like a quacks patient list and help us spread the word faster than an STI with a patient who was prescribed mercury. We'll return in two weeks with more mind-boggling fiascos from the annals of history. Until then, remember, sometimes the world of medicine is stranger than fiction, and even the most outlandish devices can leave you scratching your head and hopefully not quite dead. Find us online at oh the God Pod. That's O the G-O-D-P-O-D. We are on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Threads, and we just created a Patreon. So check us out. Subscribe if you want to help us continue to grow the podcast. All right, everyone. Have a good day and down with the glutenati.